So if you've been here the last couple of months, you'll know that we've been doing a series in the book of James. We've been going through the letter that James wrote to the early Christian churches, and today is the last in our series. So it's the last um, message from the book of James. Um, I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed this series. I feel like I've um, understood and enjoyed the book of James in a way that I've never done before. And the thing that's really just come through the whole of the the letter has been the main thing really he's getting at, his heart and his passion to see Christians living out their faith, um, living out what they believe, what they say they believe about Jesus to be showed in their lives. And that's partly because of James' own experience. His own life was turned upside down by meeting Jesus. So he was Jesus' brother, his half-brother, and grew up with him And while Jesus was doing all his preaching and teaching and healing, James was pretty sceptical. He was thinking, well, he's my brother. He's not the son of God. All this stuff, I'm not convinced. But after Jesus had died and risen again, uh, we we learn from the Bible that Jesus met with James. And we don't know what happened in that meeting, but we do know that it completely transformed his life. And he went from being uh, a skeptic to one of Jesus' most passionate followers. And he became one of the most important leaders in the early church. So so James had this massive change in his life. His life was turned upside down by Jesus. And in the the churches that he was writing to, he became aware of uh, Christians who were saying they believed in Jesus, but their lives didn't show any kind of uh, difference to those who lived uh, around them, to the world around them. And, And James is saying, how can this be? If you've met Jesus, if... Jesus really is who you say that you believe he is. And if Jesus really has done what you say that you believe he's done, if Jesus really has brought you into the kind of relationship with God that you say you believe he's brought you into, then your lives have got to look different. And if they don't, then something's wrong. You're missing something. So that's what James is saying. Our lives have got to show a difference from what we believe. And I don't know about you, um, I don't know whether you ever feel, you look at your life and you don't see the kind of consistency between what you believe and what you do that you wish you did. Anyone feel like that? You, you say, you know the right things to say and you know the right things to believe and you say them and you believe them. You believe the right things, but you look at your life and it's still, you still get angry about small things and you get annoyed with people that you love over things that don't really matter. You still get anxious and you still get fearful and you're still slow to trust God. And you're still quick to speak, and you say things that you wish you didn't, and you're, you're still slow to listen, and you still don't live the life that you, th- you, that you want to be living. And if you feel like that, welcome to the club. <laughs> I think we all do. And I think James got that, and I think that's why James wrote his letter. I think he wrote to people like that. And James is good news. What James writes is good news. And it's good news because behind James, behind everything he writes, is the heart of a father. We've been thinking about Father's Day, and God is our true father. And in God's heart, as a father, is behind everything that's in James. And just like a good father wants the best for his children, and he wants wants the best life possible, so God loves us as his children so much that he doesn't want to leave us where we are. He doesn't want to leave us in immaturity. He wants so much more for us. And so the heart of James is not God saying, try harder 
And if you don't, then I won't be happy with you. And you've got to do this if I'm going to be pleased with you. It's not that. It's the Father saying, this is the life I made you for. It's the Father saying, this is what it looks like to be captured by Jesus, to have your life completely taken up by him. This is what it looks like, and this is good. This is what I made you for. And that's why we've called our, our series Fully His. It's, it's God saying, this is what it looks like to be fully mine, and that's what I want for you. Um, last week, Peter used the illustration of a goldfish bowl. Anyone ever have goldfish when they were younger? I had a goldfish. I was a, a teenager, and uh, I bought this goldfish. I thought it would be quite cool to have a fish in my room. And it lasted for about uh, four or five weeks until I went away for the weekend and forgot to ask someone to feed it. And I got back and it was uh, floating in an unusual position. So sorry to any fish lovers out there. Um, Peter used the illustration that our lives before we meet Jesus can be a bit like a fish in a goldfish bowl. So we're swimming around in our lives and all we ever know is what we've grown up in and been born into, which is self-centeredness. It's the life of sin. That's what self-centeredness is a life that's fallen, and we swim around in this goldfish bowl, and we just think that's normal. And what, what happens when you become a Christian? It's a bit like you, that goldfish bowl is taken, and it's plunged into the ocean with no lids, and the fish is told, swim. In the goldfish bowl, you were trapped. Actually, that goldfish bowl was death for you. You were trapped, but now you're free. Go and explore God, the life God made you to live, and live a life where God is your everything, Live a life where you're sold out for him. And it's going to be different. And it's going to be uncomfortable at times. And it's going to be scary. But it's far worse to keep swimming around in the little circles that you're used to. Because fish were made to swim in the ocean. This is the life you were made for. A life where God's your everything and you're fully his. So that's the heart of James. And in this last passage that we're getting to uh, this afternoon, that's what we see James getting at right at the start of our passage. So open up your Bibles. To James chapter 5. Um, I think it's page 10, 12, 10, 13, towards the end of the Bible. Page 10, 13. And we're going to read the last chunk in James chapter 5. Um, we're going to look at that today from verse 13 through to verse 20. Page 10, 13. So James starts this last kind of section. By saying this in verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And the point he's making is the point that we've just been talking about. He's saying, live a life with God as your everything. Bring God in to every area of your life. So are you suffering? Well, what's the, what's the natural thing that we do when we're suffering? We, we feel uh, d- depressed. We feel uh, anxious. We complain. Depending on your personality, it's going to be one of those three things. You complain, you get anxious, you're depressed. All those things are inward-looking. That's the goldfish bowl way of doing it. James is saying, don't do any of those things. If you're suffering, pray. Take your suffering, take your hardship to God. Bring him in. Bring God's perspective into your life. Take the trial you're going through and take it to God. And actually, this isn't a new thought. So James started his letter, if you flick over the page the start of chapter 1, saying the same thing. He says, count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds at the start of chapter 1, verse 2, because you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and then you go on and become perfect and complete. And he says, what that needs, what you require to do that is wisdom. And if you don't have that kind of wisdom, then ask God. 
and he gives generously. What you need to count your trials joy is God's perspective. So ask him. And that's basically what he's saying here in chapter 5, verse, four, uh, verse 13. Are you suffering? Then pray. Pray for God's perspective. Pray to get God's view on your life. And that will help you go, uh, keep going through the trials. So bring God in when you're suffering. But there's not just a danger that we'll, we'll forget God when we're suffering. There's also a danger we'll forget God when we're having a good time. So he says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So what's the, the natural reaction when we're cheerful? We want to enjoy the moment and we want to keep doing whatever it is that got us to that moment so we can enjoy it more. So often our response to having a good time is also quite self-centered. We think, great, I'm going to enjoy it. Now the good times are here. Enjoy it while I can because bad times might be around the corner. And James says, no, don't do that either. If you're cheerful, then sing praise. Again, turn it back to God. Bring him into the picture. In every circumstance of your life, this is how you grow to maturity. This is how you live fully his bring God in. And I think it's, there's a danger here as we read these verses. It would be easy to read these commands about praying and praising in a kind of individualistic way because we're so used as Western Christians to having our own lives, building our own CVs, developing our own relationships, being about me, and we don't think in community. But actually, as James is writing these words, he's writing to a group of Christians and the, the you, he's, he's saying is, is plural. He's saying, is anyone among all of you suffering? Pray. Is anyone among all of you cheerful? Let him sing praise. And that's actually really important because I think James's whole point in this last section we're looking at, his whole point is to grow to true maturity, you need community. That's the main, the main idea he's getting at. To really grow into maturity, all the things I've talked about in my letter, what you need is each other. And what you need is to to grow and pray for each other and care for each other in community. And that's how you grow to maturity. So that's kind of implicit here in verse 13. It's hinted at, but he makes it explicit in the rest of the section we're looking at. So the rest of the section, what James does is he takes two particular areas of our lives as a community where we particularly need each other. Two areas of our life as a church where we particularly need each other to help each other grow into maturity. And the first of those two is sickness. Sickness. Now, sickness is hard. Um, it's, I think it's almost kind of peculiar amongst all the trials that we go through as Christians, as people. Um, sickness, being ill, is one of the hardest. So if you think about um, Job... Um, you may be familiar with the story of, of Job in the Old Testament. Um, it's a fascinating book. Um, he was tempted by, by the devil who was trying to draw him away from God. And the devil uh, took away his, his family, his, his children, and their families were killed. All of his, his lands and his possessions, his flocks of sheep, they were taken away from him. His home was burned down. With all of that stuff in Job's life taken away, he was still able to say, the Lord gives, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. It was when Job was afflicted with sickness, with sores, and he was in pain, and there was no, seemingly no way out of it. That was when he broke down. That was when he turned to God and said, what's going on? I, I, I wish I was never born. So physical sickness is, I think, a particularly hard kind of trial. And I don't know about you, but I forget this. When I'm well, I forget how hard it is to be ill. But when I'm ill, I can't believe I forgot how hard it is to be ill. 
even if it's just a little illness, I'm lying in bed and thinking, oh, I need to really thank God for my health when I'm better from this illness. And I've never been properly ill. I've never really been sick um, long-term with a, a debilitating illness and there's no seeming way out. And that's really hard. And that applies to physical illness and it applies to mental illness as well. Mental illness is just as hard as physical illness, can be just as debilitating, and it's something that's not often talked about. But sickness is a, an area of life that has real, um, real, in real danger of derailing us. And it's, a, it's a, a thing that can cause us, perhaps more than anything, to become introverted and turn in on ourselves and be self it's, it's hard. It's, it's really hard not to um, respond like that. But James says, no. In sickness, that's when you need each other the most. So let's read what he says, verse 14 and verse 15. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Okay. So it's probably fair to say that those two verses um, have caused some of the most discussion and some of the most controversy in the church since they were written a couple of thousand years ago. Um, he's saying, if you're, if you're sick, um, call the elders, they'll pray over you, they'll anoint you with oil, and the prayer of faith will make the sick person well. It doesn't just say that, does it? The prayer of faith will save the sick person, he'll be raised up, and if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. So what's he saying there? Well, I think it's pretty clear that he's talking about some kind of pretty serious illness, serious enough to call the elders to pray over them. Beyond that, it becomes less clear. I think there's, there's two main interpretations of these verses, basically, two main ways you can go. And it concerns the meaning of those words uh, save and raise up in verse 15. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. So the first kind of way you can go in interpreting those verses is to say that that save, that word, is referring to physical healing. So the elders pray and you're healed physically, you're, you're made well, and you're raised up out of your bed, as it were. And a lot of people go that way. Um, a lot of respected people go that way. Uh, th- there's a few problems when you go that way. So one is, for instance, um, what, what about when all those prayers are prayed in faith by elders and people aren't made well? That happens a lot of the time. So what about that? It seems to be saying here that that will happen in every occasion. Another question is, um, if he's referring to physical healing, then why does he use a spiritual word? So the word save, in every other place it's used in James, is, is, refers to spiritual salvation, saving of the soul. So why does he use that word when he could use the word heal? And the, the other question is, well, why does he bring up sin at the end of verse 15? What, what's that got to do with it? So, and there's a lot of problems to think through. That's, that's one interpretation. The other interpretation is that that word save refers to um, salvation, final salvation at the last day, and raising up is, is resurrection with Jesus. So that takes the word save at more at face value. And um, what, what this kind of understanding of the passage basically says that um, the prayer of faith that the elders pray over the person is basically the same prayer as the prayer that James tells us to pray in chapter 1, verse 5, the one I mentioned. When you're going through a trial, and you lack wisdom, pray for wisdom, and God will give generously without fault to whoever asks for it, if you ask and don't doubt. That's what he says there. And I think that's the prayer of faith that he's referring to in, in, in chapter 5. He's saying, the prayer of faith for perseverance in the trial of sickness will result 
in salvation at the last day as that believer perseveres through their sickness and they will finally be saved and raised up when Jesus comes back. I think that interpretation is a bit more consistent with what James is getting at in the rest of his letter. He's saying, my heart here is for believers to endure through trials. James's heart isn't for there to be some kind of mechanism for trials to be just taken away if you pray a magic prayer. He's saying, no, what I really want is for you to be given faith in your trial, to persevere through your trial, and at the final day you'll be raised up. I think there's huge potential for, um, for God to use sickness for good. There's huge potential if these prayers are answered and the person who is sick is given the faith to persevere. I don't know if you, you may be familiar with the story of um, Johnny Erickson Tarder. If you're not, um, look it up, buy a biography of her, buy one of the books she's written. It's an incredible story. So she was a, a fit, healthy, athletic 17-year-old with a bright future. And she had a diving accident in the sea. She dived off a, a, a board and the, the water was shallower than she expected and she broke her neck. She was paralyzed from the neck down and she couldn't feel anything below her neck. As she was, she'd become a Christian a couple of years before that. As she was being driven off in the ambulance from the, from the beach with her sister in tears next to her, um, not able to do anything but speak, the first words on her lips were, the Lord's my shepherd, the Lord's my shepherd. She was in hospital for a few months, years, and it, it sank in um, what had actually happened. During those first months, the only thing that she could do was be turned over. She was lying on a bed. Half the day would be facing up, half the day facing down so that she can get bed sores. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? All that you would have in your life is the memories of when you could do all the stuff you used to do. Go swimming, ride horses, laugh and play with your friends. And ahead of you, all you're facing is other people doing stuff for you, having to be carried around, having to be fed, having to have your teeth cleaned for you, having to be washed. So difficult. But she was someone who trusted in God. And she was someone who trusted that he had purposes for her sickness and she said I'm not going to look back and and think my best days are behind me I'm going to look forward to how I can serve him she learned how to paint with her teeth so she's painted incredible pictures with her with her mouth and she's um she got people to dictate books for her and she's written incredible books and now she's a globally famous in-demand conference speaker and she's blessed hundreds thousands probably millions of lives through her story and through her struggle and through her faith in sickness. There's huge potential for God to use sickness for his good. Think of another example closer to home. Um, The church that we were at in in Bristol um, planted a church in the south part of the city. And um, the pastor there, a good friend of ours, had his wife diagnosed with cancer a few years ago, and it was terminal. And just their journey through dealing with that, they've got two sons, primary and secondary age, and the incredible witness of their refusal to um, pretend that it wasn't hard, but their refusal also to, 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 to let it get them down. And they, they, they used the opportunity to share um, with a huge number of people through a blog that he wrote and updated regularly, um, through the people that came to their church, through their witness in her workplace. She was a doctor. Um, saying to them, I, I'm not afraid of dying. And this is why. And come and meet the Jesus that I know. And come and meet him, and you don't need to be afraid of dying either. And they invited people to Christianity Explore courses to explore more of, of why they had this faith. And eventually, so many were touched by their story at the funeral. Um, they had to have the, the funeral service at Ashton Gate Stadium in Bristol. 
um, because there were so many people who wanted to pay their respects and, and witness to this incredible story of a woman who knew she was going to die, but knew she had faith in her saviour. Another example of people using their sickness well, using it for God. And it's not just the Johnnies and the Elaines of this world. It's, it's in small ways as well. We can use the illnesses, the trials that we go through for good if we pray in faith and if we pray for wisdom and we pray for God's perspective to see those trials, to see those illnesses, even the things that are hard for us. It's, it's hard when you're ill. It's hard. But God can use even those times for good if we pray in faith. Uh, maybe you're struggling with illness. How could this change what you pray for yourself? How could this change who you ask to pray for you as well? God can use sickness. And I just want to be clear, I'm not saying that God can't heal physically if he wants to. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for physical healing either. Actually, I do. I find myself often praying for, for friends, for, for in Jesus' name, for God to heal sicknesses, both big and small. And I've seen God answer those prayers. I believe God does heal today. I'm just saying I don't think that that's what this passage is about. I'm saying that we should pray in a way that doesn't demand that God heals because it's not promised for us. And sometimes God has bigger purposes for us in sickness. So I think we should pray, we should pray trustingly, we should pray with faith, but we should pray resting, knowing that God's good and he's got something for us in everything we go through. And most of all, I think we should pray for this radical change of perspective that he calls us to. So that's the first area of life where James says you need each other. You need community to grow to maturity, the area of sickness. And he says, pray for radical perspective. And the second area where he says you need each other is the area of sin, and particular division caused by sin in the community. And he says to that situation, pray for radical healing. So let's, let's read verses 16 to 20. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So I think we all know, um, probably from personal experience, the, the kind of division that can be caused in a community by sin. And James knows that can happen because he's right into a community where that is happening. We know that from the start of chapter 4. A couple of weeks ago, he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? So he knows people that he's writing to are quarreling and fighting with each other. And the reason is, it's their passions, their desires that are at war. It's sin. It causes division. And his prescription into that situation where there is division in a community that is caused by sin is, is a radical prescription. He says, confess your sins to each other. Go to each other and confess and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me. And that, that he says, is the way to bring true healing. It's radical. He's not saying confess to God. I'm sorry, God, I did that against that person. He's not saying go to the person and say, I'm sorry, but this is why I did it. and This is why you're really wrong. <laughs> he's, saying, I'm so he's saying go to the person, say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Please forgive me. 
I think there's, there's um, different levels at which this operates in a church context, and we need to not get them confused. So there's different levels at which people can be hurt by our sin. You can have uh, a, a very public sin in a church community. Um, for instance, I think of a missionary that we knew who got involved in a, a, a bad relationship while he was away. Had It was, it was a, a big mess, and the church had to... Um, deal with the situation Um, and he came back and um, because the sin was the nature of the sin was it was against a whole community everyone in the church was affected by his falling away he then um, when he was uh, repentant and he'd he'd come to the point where he wanted to say yeah that was wrong I'm sorry please forgive me he did that to the whole church he stood up incredibly powerful moment and um, and a really healing moment as well when someone stands up and everyone's seen what you've done and he stands up and says, I'm sorry, I was wrong, forgive me. An incredibly healing moment. And it, a moment where you realize I'm safe in this church because that kind of thing happens. So when the hurt's on that level, confession should be on that level. And there's other levels of hurt. Let's say you're in a small group, you're in a Bible study, and you say something uh, that you know is going to hurt someone. You know, you know it's an unkind thing to say. You're, you're calling someone out, you're exposing someone, you're saying something that is going to embarrass them. Or it's just a sharp word. And it's in the group in front of everyone. And it, it, you should go and say sorry to that person afterwards if that's happened. But actually, it might be appropriate, the sin is on the level of the group, to say at the end of that, that meeting, look, actually, if God has convicted you of it. I'm sorry, in front of everyone. That was wrong, forgive me. Again, how healing is that? When the confession happens on that level, everyone's seen the sin, everyone's seen the Spirit's work, bringing you to repentance and, 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 and confession. It's healing and it makes it a safe place. And then there's the, the one-to-one level. You've hurt someone. You, you, again, you've, you've got frustrated, you've got annoyed, you've said a, a sharp word. Or the opposite. You're holding back, you're freezing someone out, you're, you're being deliberately distant and you know you're hurting that person. And you know it's injuring them. And you're convicted of it. Don't just confess to a friend. Don't just confess to God. Go to that person and say, look, I've been doing this. I'm sorry. I was wrong please forgive me. And the kind of healing that can take place when that happens is incredible. It's a silly example. Um, we, um, we were at this barbecue last night and we got home a, a little bit later than I was hoping. I needed to spend a bit of time in the evening finishing off preparing for, for this, this sermon. And um, it took a while to get uh, the girls down to bed. And I was impatient. I was thinking, I need to get to my desk. I need to get working. I need to get thinking. And I spoke sharply. I spoke in anger. I was impatient. With, with Chloe in particular. And I sat down to prepare this, and I thought, I need to say sorry to her. I need to say sorry. This, this is ridiculous. I can't prepare this and have that on my heart. So um, she came down in the morning. I said, Chloe, I'm sorry I got frustrated with you last night. I was wrong. Please forgive me. And she said, I do. And we carried on. <laughs> and it was a precious moment. If that doesn't happen, there's not healing. If it happens, there is. It requires a kind of personal vulnerability, a willingness to be wrong, which is hard, but it's possible because we know that we've been forgiven. And that's what brings healing. That's what James calls us to. I know maybe God's putting someone on your heart as I'm speaking, and you know that something you've done has caused a division between you two. And maybe God's calling you to to go to that person and, and, and confess it. I'm not saying that in every case we should confess private sins to people that are, uh, that are, that are not necessarily affected, so there may be cases where, um, uh, for instance, you're jealous of someone, or um, you, you are 
you, you're, you're, you judge someone in your heart. And there's no obvious tangible effect to that person. And actually, in those cases, it's, it may not always be helpful to say sorry. It may not always be helpful to say, I'm sorry, I was, I'm jealous of your house. Um, every time you walk into that person's house, there's going to be a little bit of a, a tension there. That sort of thing needs to go to God. But if, if, that, if that sin against that person has had some kind of tangible effect on your relationship and they know it, you need to confess that sin. So sin causes division between believers, but sin can also cause distance in a community as people wander away. That's what James is getting at in verses 19 and 20. He's talking about someone within the community of the church, someone who's professing faith in Jesus. This person may or may not be a believer in Jesus. They're professing faith and they're wandering away. And, that, that their, and their sin is causing a division in the community. Um, again, James's prescription here is equally radical. He says, don't just let them go. He says, lovingly pursue them. And the aim of pursuing them is always to bring them back. So it's not going to someone and saying, you're wrong. What you're doing is wrong. You can leave. It's not saying to someone, what you're doing is okay. Stay amongst us. I'm thinking of a kind of an example where, another example I can think of, um, Really, a, a friend who was um, again professing as a Christian and got involved in a relationship with a girl who wasn't a Christian. They moved in together. Uh, they had children, and it, so it was quite a public um, kind of thing that, that he was doing that we knew wasn't the right thing for him to be doing. And there had to be a, a kind of calling out of that. We couldn't just say that's okay. We didn't want to say you can't do that. Just leave. So there was a, a confronting but saying look to Jesus with the aim of drawing back in. That's, that's always the goal. Loving pursuit with the aim of uh, restoration. And it is radical because I don't think this kind of thing comes naturally to us, uh, particularly us Brits. We, um, we kind of have an instinct to leave people alone and let people get on with their lives. But James says, no, it's not, it's not okay to just leave people because there's so much at stake. Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. There's too much at stake to let people go. So both of these things, confession and pursuit, are so important. They're so important to avoid sin causing division in communities. But they're both really hard to do, aren't they? They're both really hard to do. And that's why verses 16 to 18 are so encouraging. Because James wants to remind us that these things are hard to do, but prayer is powerful enough to heal any brokenness. It's powerful enough to heal any division in a church. The prayer of a righteous person, he says, has great power as it is working. And he gives the example of Elijah. So Elijah was a great prophet from uh, the Old Testament, and he was used by God in amazing ways. The story that James refers to is the story of Elijah confronting uh, an evil king of the day on Mount Carmel, and he prayed for, for, the, for um, God to take away the rain, and for three and a half years it didn't rain. And he prayed again at this confrontation. You can read all about it in, in 1 Kings. And, and God gave rain. He was a, a great man of faith. But he was also a man just like us. Almost immediately after that had happened, Elijah ran away. And he complained to God. He said, I'm the only one. And he, he, he was also weak and fearful. And he actually got depressed. But in that place, he prayed. And that's the point. Wherever we are, we can pray. And prayer is powerful. Prayer is powerful enough to heal any kind of brokenness in any kind of community. So we need to be encouraged because we can pray and because we are righteous. Because we are actually righteous. In, in Jesus, 
God has given us the righteousness of his son. And we stand in the place where we can pray. We stand in the place of, of, of power in prayer because we're in Christ. So we can pray in confidence and we can, we can call out to God and ask him to, to heal and to bring unity. And we can also pray in confidence as we grow in our own maturity, as we grow in our own righteousness. Because as we pray in line with God's heart, we know the prayers that we're praying, the kind of prayers that we're talking about here, prayers for, um, for unity, prayers for, for healing, prayers for perspective in trials, they're the kind of prayers God loves to answer. So true Christian maturity happens as we face sickness and as we face sin together and as we pray together and as we care for each other together. True Christian maturity, James says, happens in community. Wouldn't it be great as we kind of come to the end of this series in James as we look back over the last couple of months, wouldn't it be great if we as, as Trinity Chippenham as a church could be this kind of community? A community that grows in Christian maturity together. A community that loves each other and cares for each other. A community that um, reminds each other of truth. Where we persevere in, in trials in, and in sickness and in, in hardships with, with the eyes of faith. Seeing God's perspective on our lives. Where we don't judge people where we welcome everyone, a community where we put into practice our faith, where we, we, we make sacrifices and we do radical things, a community where we, we love each other, a community where we, we, we're, we're generous. Wouldn't it be great if we were that kind of community, reflecting God's heart in the book of James together, praying together, growing into maturity together? That's our prayer for the church. Um, and that's, that's our prayer for, as, we, as we think about this book. And let's not leave James without getting a glimpse of God's vision for our church. And let's not leave James without getting a glimpse of, of God's heart for us. It's the, heart, it's the heart of a father. He's a father who loves us too much to leave us where we are. He's a father who loves us too much to, to leave us in immaturity. And best of all, he's not a father who is distant. He's not giving us distant commands and saying, do this and do that so you can be better. Do this and do that and I'll be happy with you. He's a father who wants relationship with us. And he's a father who wants us to draw near to him in prayer because that's relationship. He's a father who wants to grow us and he wants to take us on this journey, talking about all this stuff, with him. He's a father who wants to work in us. So maybe if you get a few moments, why not take a few, a few minutes tonight in, in the quiet tomorrow morning and think about, what's, what's God putting on my heart from the book of James? Where's he, where's he speaking to me? What does he want to do in my heart? And what journey does he want to take me on as my father? Where does he want to take me? And where does he want to take us as a church? Let's, let's pray. <clears throat> father, we thank you so much that you are a good God. Thank you that we can trust you in trials. Thank you that we can trust you in sickness. Thank you that we can trust you even when we experience the pain of division caused by sin. Thank you for the book of James. Thank you that you love us too much to leave us where we are. Thank you that your heart is for us to grow because that's the life we were made for. Thank you that your heart is, is for us to, to live um, fully yours and to, to be our everything because that's the life where we, where we, where we will be uh, most happy and most joyful. We pray that that will be the case for each one of us um, as we head into the summer as we head on for the book of James. In Jesus' name, amen.